You're listening to Sermon Audio from Jerusalem Church, an independent Reformed church in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Our expository preaching ministry is devoted to proclaiming the law and the gospel for the glory of God and the salvation, growth, and comfort of Christ's church. If you'd like to know more about our church, visit us online at JerusalemChurch.net. Here's a message that we hope strengthens your faith and comforts your soul. So those closest to me know that one of my favorite things to do is to brag to them about how great of a person I am. For example, I often enjoy telling my mom what a perfect son she's raised and how I'm so much better than my older brother who is nowhere as near as good as I am. I like to say that she really got it right the second time around. So no one can blame her for loving me a little bit more. Likewise, from time to time, I enjoy reminding my wife, Sue, who couldn't be here this morning, how lucky she is to have married the perfect man. So incredibly handsome, wise, strong, and witty, yet also compassionate and caring. And most importantly, let's not forget, humble. I'm also extremely humble. (laughs) But for some strange reason, whenever I remind my wife, Sue, of this incredible gift that she's been given, she has a tendency just to smile a little awkwardly at me and nervously while shaking her head in a slightly disapproving sort of way. And for the life of me, I just can't understand it. Like, she just doesn't seem to get it. But maybe, just maybe, if I'm being honest, perhaps it's because Sue knows just how far from perfect I really am. You see, the truth is, even though it is fun to pretend otherwise, I'm still very much a work in progress. Sue does her best to help me along, but I still have a long, long way to go before I'm perfect. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is making a similar point about himself. In verse 13, Paul tells us that the one thing he doesn't do is consider that he has made it his own. In the New American Standard Bible, this verse is translated as saying, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it. But this begs the question, What is it exactly that Paul has not yet made his own? What is it that he has not yet laid hold of? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to go back to verses 8 and 9 in our chapter, where Paul explains that he has suffered the loss of all things in order that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from obedience to the law, but rather a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ as a gift from God. Now what I want to call your attention to in these two verses, 8 and 9, is the fact that Paul says that he has no righteousness of his own. 
The only righteousness that Paul has is the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, which is given to him by God. Now, this is an important verse because it's one of the many places in Scripture where Paul is describing what we call the doctrine of justification. You see, the doctrine of justification teaches that the moment a person puts their faith in Christ for their salvation, God then credits that person with Christ's righteousness. So then that person is justified or made right with God, not on the merit of their own righteousness, but on the merit of Christ's righteousness. In other words, when any individual puts their trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, their legal status before God, their judge, changes from guilty to innocent. Because God covers or hides that guilty person and their sin in Christ's perfect righteousness. And then he declares them innocent. This is what Paul says has happened to him in verses 8 and 9. So we must realize that the righteousness Paul has is an alien or a foreign righteousness. It's a righteousness that does not inherently belong to him. It's a righteousness that comes from without and not from within. It's as if Paul has been dressed with the king's royal garment, even though he himself remains a filthy and unworthy peasant. His inward condition, therefore, does not match his outward appearance. So when Paul writes in verse 13 that he does not consider that he has made it his own yet, he is simply recognizing this important fact. Paul is rightfully recognizing that he has never, not even for a second, lived up to the way in which God sees him. And that's because when God looks at Paul, all he sees is this perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, despite the, despite the fact that Paul himself remains a sinner. So then Paul is highlighting a very important distinction for us between justification and our ongoing sanctification. Justification is that one-time event in which a person is instantly and unalterably declared righteous the moment they trust in Christ. Sanctification, on the other hand, is the lifelong process in which a person is gradually brought into greater and greater conformity with Christ's perfect righteousness. Justification has to do with our outward status before God. Whereas our ongoing sanctification has to do with our inward condition. And in verse 13, Paul is simply saying that he has not reached the point 
in the process of his uh, sanctification, where he can say that his inward condition is equal to his outward status. Now, to state the matter more clearly, when Paul says that he has not yet made it his own, or that he has not yet taken hold of it, he means that he has not yet achieved perfect conformity to Christ's righteousness. Now let's just pause here for a moment to appreciate the fact that the Apostle Paul, someone who actually saw and spoke with our risen Savior and Lord, someone who wrote something like 28% of the New Testament, was a man not afraid to admit that he wasn't perfect. Now let's be clear about something. When Paul admits that he's not perfect, what he's actually doing is that he's confessing that he is still a sinner who does sinful things that have harmful consequences. That's what Paul is saying about himself. That is, after all, that is, after all, what it means not to be perfect. Now, a lesser leader or a lesser person would be afraid to admit as much for fear of losing the confidence of his followers. But Paul freely admits it because he doesn't want his readers to be under the false impression that followers of Christ can actually attain perfection in this life. And the reason, the reason why Paul can freely admit such an awful thing about himself is because he is fully assured, he is fully assured that he has already been justified before his creator. Not on the basis of Paul's righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness. As a result, Paul is free to confess his sinfulness to others because he has nothing to prove. The question for us, the question for you and for me, is can we do the same? Are we free to admit to, admit to ourselves and to other people that we're not perfect? And when we're confronted, when we're confronted with the horrible and sometimes tragic consequences of our own sinful imperfection, are we prepared to hide away and to trust in Christ's perfect righteousness and to simply let that be enough? Now, as I see it, there are typically two types of Christians that you can find in most churches on a Sunday morning. The first type are those of us who have a very hard time with being real with others about our sinfulness. And so we're constantly trying to appear as if we've got life 
all figured out. But we're also very good at making excuses for ourselves when others begin to see our faults and the cracks in our persona. Now sure, this type of person might give lip service to the fact that we're not perfect. But how they live their lives and how they treat others testifies to the fact that they actually think very differently about themselves. You might know these people because they are the kind of people who can't handle being told that they're wrong. And they have a very difficult time receiving instruction from others. That's the first type of person that you can find in a church on a Sunday morning. The second type of person are those of us who seem to have an all-too-easy time with being real with others about our sinfulness. This type of person has been taught very early on that God doesn't save us because of our good works and that there is always more grace for the sinner. And while that may be true, this type of person is often very quick to throw up their hands and to admit to everyone who's listening, oh, we're not perfect. We don't have it all figured out. Now, the problem, however, is that this person may be, just maybe, a little too comfortable with their own sinfulness. It doesn't grieve them as they should. As a result, they're not all that motivated to change. But as we'll see in our passage, the Apostle Paul doesn't respond to his sinfulness in either of these two ways. Paul doesn't try to cover up and make excuses for himself, nor does he simply shrug it off and accept it as a status quo in the name of grace. Instead, in verse 14, he tells us that he presses on. This is the one thing that Paul does do. He presses on. And here he's simply repeating what he had just said to us prior to this in verse 12, where he writes, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. In other words, even though Paul doesn't yet consider himself to be perfect like Christ, that doesn't stop him from trying to be. Now the main verb in verse 14, if I can call your attention there, is diako, which is translated as, I press on. But that translation doesn't quite get at the heart of what that word means. You see, to press on gives us the impression, uh, it gives us the impression that Paul is kind of slowly and stubbornly making progress in the face of resistance. But diaco, actually, what it actually means is to pursue or run after something. It's a word commonly used to describe a sprinter running a race. So Paul is not just slowly marching on in an effort to be more like Christ. 
What Paul means to convey in his language is that he is running at full speed after his Lord and Savior. He's exerting all of his strength and energy in order to mortify his sin and to grow in holiness in order to become more like Jesus. You see, it's not enough for Paul to be justified by Christ's righteousness. Paul also desires to be thoroughly and completely sanctified in Christ's righteousness. As a result, he is not satisfied with knowing that one day in the future, when he has a resurrected body, that he will be made perfect. Paul simply cannot wait that long. He wants to do away with his sin now. He wants to be made righteous like his Lord and Savior now. And so he does whatever he can now in order to achieve that goal. And that's how Paul calls us to live as well. Which is why in verse 17 he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The point is simple. We're supposed to be chasing after perfection. We're supposed to be growing in Christ-like holiness now. We're not supposed to try to fake it until we make it. And we're not supposed to throw our hands up in the air and give up because, hey, it's a sin-fallen world and that's just the way things are. Now, please don't misunderstand me when I say that we are supposed to be chasing after perfection. I'm not saying that we should pretend to be perfect. We should always be honest and forthcoming with one another about our own sinfulness. But that doesn't mean that we should feel comfortable remaining as we are. Brothers and sisters, Jesus may love you as you are right now. That is true. And praise God for it. But it's not his intention to leave you that way. He doesn't leave you how he found you. Which is why he tells his followers in Matthew 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Likewise, Paul tells us in another letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 2 there, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, we were not created in Christ Jesus so that we could keep on sinning. We were not made new creatures in Christ so that we could continue to be the same self-centered, judgmental, and unforgiving people that we've always been. Let me give you an example. I'm wearing a ring on my finger today as a sign that I'm a married man. And somewhere in the county clerk's office in Philadelphia is a marriage license with my name on it. And together these two things have provided me with a new identity. 
I was once Matt Collins, the bachelor, but now I'm Matt Collins, the husband. As a result, it is now entirely inappropriate for me to live like I used to when I was unmarried. Instead, I must live in such a way that it's becoming of a married man. But consider this. Before I got married, I didn't have to live like an unmarried man. Or I didn't have to live like a married man. See, if I had lived like I was married when I was single, that would have made it difficult for me to go on dates and eventually meet my wife. Well, in the same way, before we knew Christ, we didn't have to live like perfect people in order for God to save us. But now that we are saved, and now that we do know Christ, we are called to live perfectly. And just like how any married person out of love ought to try to be the best husband or wife that they can be in order to please their spouse, so too should we as Christians, out of love and thanksgiving, ought to try to be perfect disciples in order to please our Lord and Savior. And when I say we should try to be perfect, I mean we should be exerting all of our strength, all of our emotional, mental, and physical strength and energy to reach that goal like Paul does. But how exactly is this done? What does it look like to go all out in pursuit of perfection? Well, in verse 13, the Apostle Paul tells us from his own experience that it involves doing two things. One is forgetting what is behind you, and two is straining forward to what lies ahead of you. Now, when Paul says that he forgets what lies behind him, he doesn't, he doesn't mean that he has erased from his memory everything that has happened in his life up until that point, as if that were even possible. That can't be what he means. And the reason that can't be what he means is because that he just spent the first six verses of chapter 3 describing his very impressive former life as a Pharisee. So what does Paul mean when he says that he forgets what lies behind him? Well, I think Paul is simply rewording what he's already said in verse 8, which is that he doesn't regard his former life without Christ, which is that he regards his former life with, without Christ as trash or as worthless. And because of that, he doesn't spend any time grieving or fantasizing over his past experiences. He doesn't spend any time missing who he was. And he doesn't spend any time making himself guilty over what he did in the past. He moves on. But that's not the only thing that Paul is running from or forgets. We need to remember that Paul has been describing himself as a runner who is chasing after perfection. 
which means that the only thing he cares about is progress. This implies that not only does he forget about his past life as a Pharisee, but Paul also forgets about everything that he's achieved as an apostle up until that point. Meaning no matter how many people Paul baptizes, no matter how many churches he plants, and no matter how many gains he makes in pursuit of his own personal holiness, Paul is never satisfied. He never, not even for a moment, looks back to consider his past achievements. He never dwells on his own success so as to pat himself on the back. And that's because Paul is too busy doing the other thing, straining forward with all of his might straining forward to what lies ahead of him. Like a sprinter, Paul is widening his stride, pumping his arms, accelerating his legs, pushing out his chest. Paul strains with all of his might and focuses on nothing else except reaching that finish line. That's how Paul lives his Christian life. That's how he pursues perfection. And it's because he wants to be like Christ. Now here's where I need to confess that personally, I struggle to relate to Paul here. Personally, I don't know what it's like to want to be like Christ as much as Paul does. And if I'm being honest, I think it's probably because I'm so caught up in myself, Matt Collins, most of the time. And the danger with being so self-focused is that what I end up doing is that I end up comparing myself not to the holiness of Christ, but to the holiness of other sinful people around me. As a result, Whenever somebody does this, we let other people's holiness, or the lack of it, become the standard for our behavior. Which means we only do what we have to do in order to convince ourselves that we're just as good as the other Christians around us. Or maybe even a little better. And when this happens, we allow ourselves to become, to become complacent. And we fail to pursue perfection as it is seen in Christ. So then the question we should be asking ourselves is, how can we avoid the spiritual pitfall? How can we avoid the spiritual pitfall in order to faithfully run the race that has been set before us? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to consider the why. Why Paul does what he does, which is the third and final point of our text. Let's look at verse 14 again. According to the Christian Standard Bible, Paul writes, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward 
in Christ Jesus. Now the goal that Paul presses on towards is perfection. I hope that much is clear to us by now. But the prize is something else. You see, Paul doesn't just pursue perfection for the sake of being perfect. Oh no. Nor does he pursue perfection in order to get to heaven someday. Rather, Paul pursues perfection in order to enjoy a more perfect communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ that is unhindered and unobstructed by sin. In other words, Paul does everything he can now in order to mortify sin and to grow in holiness so that one day he can enjoy a perfect relationship with a perfect God in Jesus Christ. This is the prize that he so desperately longs to attain. This is what motivates Paul and what keeps him from becoming complacent. So then, if we want to be like Paul and avoid the spiritual pitfall of becoming lazy and complacent in our own pursuit of holiness, we have to cultivate a desire for that perfect relationship with Christ the way that Paul does. Perfect communion with Jesus Christ must be what we prize most of all in this life. It has to be what we long for over and above everything else. But here's the thing. Before we can ever have that kind of desire for Christ, we must first become disgusted by our own sinfulness. John Calvin in his Institutes writes, we cannot seriously aspire to God before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. Likewise, J.C. Ryle, the English bishop, says, you will do just nothing at all and make no progress till you feel your sin and weakness. You see, that's the key. In order to prize Christ most of all, we have to recognize our need for him. And we can only recognize our need for him when we recognize just how awful we are without him. Now, in light of this, it's a miracle, an absolute miracle, that Paul himself was saved. Because Paul, when he was still someone named Saul, he was not displeased with himself in the slightest. Saul thought that he was the bee's knees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. In other words, before he was a Christian, Paul knew nothing of his own sinfulness or need for Christ. So what happened to him? 
What made him change from Saul to Paul? The answer is, he was called heavenward by God. That means he was called from death to life. He was called from sin and darkness into light and holiness. And this happened to him when he met his risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on the road to Damascus. And that's why Paul pursues Christ the way that he does. He states this plainly in verse 12 for us, where he writes, I press on to make it my own simply because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In other words, Paul strives to lay hold of Christ because Christ had already laid hold of him. That means before anyone can desire Christ or run after him, Christ must first call that person to himself. And once that happens, a person simply cannot sit still and remain as they are. When God calls someone heavenward, that person is now compelled by the force of the Holy Spirit to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and to run with endurance the race that has been set before them as they look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of their faith. So in conclusion, Paul calls us to live a life worthy of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we are called to live a life worthy of the gospel that we have received. And we have seen that the one thing that Paul doesn't do is consider himself to be perfect. But we have also seen that the one thing that Paul does do is that he pursues perfection. That is, he strives to mortify his sin, to kill his sin, and to grow in holiness in order to be more and more like Christ. So that one day, he can experience perfect communion and fellowship with his Lord and Savior. And lastly, we have seen that Jesus Christ is both the beginning and the end of Paul's Christian life. It is Jesus who is the one who enables him to run in the first place. And it is Jesus who is the prize when he finishes that race. So as I close this morning, I would like to challenge all of us, including myself, with one final question. Are you running in that race with Paul this morning? And please, let's not fool ourselves. This is a time for real introspection and honesty. Because if you are content with your own sinfulness, or if you are too busy chasing after idols and false gods 
like success and popularity and wealth and sexual pleasure, then you, my friend, have not been called heavenward by God. You are running a different race. Because the only people who have heard the upward call of God are those who are actually pursuing holiness in order to attain perfect communion with Christ. Now please, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not saying that we all have to be just as far along in the race as Paul is. I don't want to put that burden on any of us. Nor am I saying that we have to be running at the same pace, with the same level of intensity or desire that Paul has. And nor do I deny the fact that a Christian may sometimes trip and fall down. But we have to be running. You do have to be chasing after Christ. Consider these words with me for a moment by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian who was martyred for the faith by the Nazis during World War II. Bonhoeffer wrote, The only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone is a man who has left all to follow Christ. The only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone is a man that has left all to follow Christ. Those are challenging words. And I do hope that they challenge us. I hope they challenge us to turn and to seek God now in this present moment and to pray that his grace by the force of the Holy Spirit, would compel us to forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, causing us to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus.